0: Episode 1664 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg.
1: Hello.
0: Meg, I am pleased to report that Shohei Otani is back. He's back. That was the Shohei I know and love so happy. I just watched Shohei pitch a couple innings, almost a couple innings. He started Friday's game between the Angels and the A's and I recognized him again. You remember his first start last year yeah. which was also against the A's last July and there had been so much build up and anticipation because he hadn't pitched since 2018. And then he went out there and he just did not look like himself. Uh-uh. He barely threw any splitters. He topped out at 94, 95. It was just not the real Shohei. I was just like the godfather. Look how they massacred my boy. I just <laughs> did not recognize the Shohei I had known and loved. And Really, he didn't look a lot better in his second start, and and then that was it. This was the Shohei that I remember from the Halcyon spring of 2018. He looked good. He was throwing splitters left and right. He was getting great movement. He got five outs. They were all via strikeout. He was sitting 96 to 99. I think the Trackman system may have broken, but he was up there in the upper 90s. This was the real Shohei. He's back.
1: Yeah, I... I was so nervous for him but mostly for you. Which is is going to sound to our listeners like a weird thing to say but I know you and I don't know him. So, you know, your your emotional well-being is more immediate to me in terms of my experience than than his is. Yeah, I think that this was this was incredibly promising. It was it was good to see the velocity back. He didn't seem to be commanding the braking stuff super well early, but that mm-hmm. improved as as the outing went on. He had some Really impressive, like front front sliders. It was interesting yep. to hear the broadcast talk about his splitter because they they made it sound like, you know, the, the Angels were going to reign in his usage of it, which is understandable given some of the injury concerns that, that come from throwing that pitch. And then I know from talking to someone who talked to a scout who was there that he was, um, and you couldn't really tell this from the broadcast, but he sort of had the split finger grip um, when he was bringing the ball up to his glove. Because, you know, when, if a guy adjusts to that, it can be kind of easy to see uh, for the hitter so it, mm. and the, the movement certainly seemed to indicate that as did the velocity so yeah it was like this is this is good i think that when people are like he is back it's like well <laughs> okay he he is people. he has <laughs> he has thrown <laughs>
0: do you know anyone who said that yeah it's like said you know <laughs> like a, a hypothetical
1: human yeah. on the internet but i will uh-huh. say that I, I think that what you're really getting at is that when it has not been right for him and when he has been compromised and uncomfortable it has been very obvious and so i think there's still clear refinement to do here but it's his first outing of spring so that's fine like that is that puts you in normal gotta figure out a couple things before i get to the season stuff not we right. are looking for signs of sort of catastrophic systems failure stuff. <laughs> and so it is, it is very encouraging to see the arm strength back, to see the command improve over the course of the outing, and to shift the category of thing you are looking for from is this guy's arm going to fall off to what does he have to continue to tune up before opening day and that's a really promising shift of categorization of thing right and so Mm -hmm. I don't say it like don't be happy it's exciting I think that everyone wants him to succeed so badly and we are so enticed by the idea of the two way player that sometimes the reaction to it is really big but also the last year has fucking sucked so I don't (laughs) care man like be happy I think it's great
0: Yeah. Yeah. The fact that he's back now doesn't mean he will stay back or that he will stay healthy. It's very hard to do. And he's shown us glimpses before and hasn't been able to maintain it. So I'm certainly not saying that he is here to stay and it's just going to be a smooth road from now on. But... For this week, like this week, I think, has been the most enjoyable Shohei Otani experience since the beginning of 2018 when he was actually firing on all cylinders and making good starts and hitting home runs. And so since we did our Angels preview earlier this week and we talked to Fabian Ardaya and I was talking about how he's trying to keep my expectations modest... He has hit a massive home run over the batter's eye, 460-something feet. And then he came out and struck out five hitters and the five outs that he got and showed the stuff that we know that he has. So I think Fabian just tweeted, since StatCast started tracking in 2015, only one pitcher has hit a 460-plus-foot home run. That's John Gray in Colorado. Only 130 players have, period. Only 124 pitchers hit 100 miles per hour, and Shohei Otani just did both in the same week, at least according to, I think, Fabian saw 100 on the gun on the first inning there. So that's just what makes this forever tantalizing, (laughs) just that you know he can do it. I mean, he has the physical skills. When he hits a home run like that, you know he's a hitter, and when he throws pitches like that, you know he's a pitcher. So it's harder to put those two things together consistently, but you know that he can do it. Like There's no doubt at all about whether he has the talent and the physical skills to do it. It's just, can he maintain it? Can he hold up to the strain of trying to do both of these things? But he is the only player about whom you can say those things and who looks as good on both sides of the ball. And that's why we must protect him at all costs.
1: Yeah and gosh I'm I'm just looking at Fabian's timeline now and he has this he has a clip from the the strikeout splitter that he threw yeah. to to canna and it's just like this is so this is just so it's incredible to watch when it's working and so i don't want anyone to come away from this segment thinking that i am down on the situation i am simply saying that like this was really encouraging and there's some stuff to continue to refine but um Mm -hmm. we we appear to be on the road and that yes. is uh, that's an exciting place to be. Not like the book, that was terrifying, but like <laughs> in this sense, we are we are on on our way to uh to otani being a presence in the angels rotation this year in a way that will hopefully be meaningful and so it's it's very exciting to be able to entertain that and feel like it's not a foolish thing to do that's like really really great so
0: yeah and fabian has been tweeting quotes from otani and others saying that he feels free and he feels happy and he feels like he's not worried about his health and That's a good sign. A good sign that he's not nursing some injury or or hiding some injury, although you never really know. But if he feels fully effective and and healthy, then that's a difference, I think, from last year when it seems like he was just never completely right and back. And he was coming back from Tommy John and then he had other injuries. So, again, another disaster could strike at any moment. So (laughs) I don't want to be too sanguine about his chances here. But there's your daily dose of Otani hype from me.
1: But you don't have to you don't have to be down on them either. And isn't no. that a nice thing to be able to say?
0: <laughs> that is a really nice thing to be able to say. So we have team previews today. We will be talking to Alex Speer about the Red Sox and C. Trent Rosecrans about the Reds. But before we get to that, we've got to talk about Tom and Jerry again. Oh, <laughs> we just have to. New yeah. facts have come to light. So we talked about this yesterday. There is a scene in the recently released feature film, Tom and Jerry, that is a baseball scene. It's about 30 seconds long. It takes place in Yankee Stadium. If you haven't heard our discussion about it yesterday, we had a number of complaints about this clip, including but not limited to the fact that Joe Buck, who does the commentary, calls Alex Gordon Big Alex Gordon, despite that not being his nickname or Gordon being notably big. That was a small thing. Then there was the fact that the batted ball, which was a real batted ball hit by Gordon in 2018 off J-Hap in Yankee Stadium, did not go where the clip suggested it should go. And it, it wasn't entirely clear whether the movie was saying that this was a fly ball that was going to the warning track and possibly over the wall as a home run or whether it was in foul territory. But Either way, the batted ball that they chose was not representative of either of those things. It was a can of corn to left. Then there was the problem that the batted ball was to left field, whereas in the movie commentary that was shown from a news broadcast, it says the ball went to right. And then there was also the fact that there was no fan interference called when Tom reaches over the fence to interfere with what would have been the game ending out for the Yankees. Tom and Jerry are thrown out of the ballpark, and everyone's mad at them, but it seems like that should have been an out anyway, based on our reading of the scenes. So, we've gotten a number of emails about this, and some of them have been quite informative, so... I'll just mention a couple more quibbles with this scene that have been mentioned by some of our listeners. And one of them was something that I meant to mention, and I just got caught up in talking about all the other things that were making me mad that I just didn't have time for this one. But as listener Matt notes, the bat crack was a metal bat ping. It was not, in fact, a bat crack. I'll, I'll just quickly play some sound samples here of the actual bat crack from this play hit by Alex Gordon in 2018, followed by the ping that is clearly apparent in the movie footage. Okay, so... Clearly, these are different. I don't know why. I don't know why they couldn't just use the bat crack from the actual play that was on the screen. But, you know, they just had to mess with it and make it worse and wrong and less accurate. But again, that is just a small thing. But thank you to Matt for reminding me of that complaint. Now, Connor had another email. Did this scene read to you? As a playoff game or just a regular season game?
1: So once we received this email, I went back and watched for the 9,000th time. (laughs) I feel like (laughs) I've watched the entire Tom and Jerry movie based on how many times I have watched this particular scene. It does seem to indicate that there are stakes that would, would have to be playoff related because if... They, they don't make sense for the commentary to exist between a, a central and an east team otherwise. Yeah. And so maybe we're supposed to be reading it as a, a playoff game, but I don't quite understand why it looks like July. Then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the actual game that the clip comes from is July. It's July 29th, 2018. Definitely does not look to me like an October game in Yankee Stadium. First of all, it's a day game. Right. And how often are the Yankees playing day games in the playoffs? And, you know, people are sitting around in shirt sleeves, some of them. It's nice, sunny, summery day. So it does not look like October to me. But it's true that Joe Buck, as the ball is coming down, he says the ball game may be over. The Yankees could move on. Great. And I, I mean, I guess you could move on from any game <laughs> or any regular season series. But that seems to imply that this is going to be like a, a playoff series ending out here. The Yankees could move on. So this is a, a problem, A, in that it doesn't really match the footage. But also, as Connor pointed out, given the line the Yankees can move on implies that the Tom and Jerry game is a decisive AL playoff encounter. All I can say is well done, J Happ. As it's unlikely he's been installed as the Yankees' closer in the Tom and Jerry universe, it seems that he has pitched at least eight and two-thirds strong innings in an important playoff game. Tom robbing him of a complete game is the real injustice of the scene or if you're being uncharitable the real anachronism good point Connor and it's true that uh, J-Hap has not pitched a complete game since 2010 <laughs> that was his last complete game the last time he went eight and two thirds in a game was 2016 and I don't believe he's ever recorded a save so it it's true I mean he's pitched in relief in the postseason, I believe, and and in other games. But here he is closing out a one-game lead potential playoff game. Hard to imagine what the scenario is that J-Hap would still be on the mound here, that uh, even if he were having a great day, that the Yankees would leave him in to finish what he started. J-Hap, not really the sort of guy who tends to be left in to go three or four times through the order these days or to be given the ball in a safe situation. So that is an additional confounding factor here.
1: I wonder if they they thought because they are describing, because what we watch of this play on the field is meant to put us in the ballpark rather than having us be, you know, the, the folks at home watching on TV. I wonder if they thought, well, there's not going to be a score bug. So like we can kind of just fudge right. this stuff like nobody's going to notice. I am rewatching it. Once more,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ben. I'm watching it again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why am I doing that? And I wonder if my initial interpretation that Tom is the mouse. No, Jerry is the mouse. No, who is we the? We decided
0: that Tom is the the cat.
1: Tom is the cat. So I oh, because like a tomcat Tom cat. maybe. Okay, yeah, so sense. that's a good way to remember that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if upon re-watching this, if I overestimated the degree to which he is obviously reaching into the field, but, m- but we are more meant to think that this would be a play that the this outfielder could make into right. the stands. I think that that has to be the conclusion we are meant to draw, um, mm-hmm. thus removing the fan interference component from this. Although I will say, uh, make your camera angles more obvious. It is ambiguous in this instance. <laughs>
0: Agree. All right. And then the last email that we have to mention here, this is from Jordan. And Jordan did some great research here. He found an interview at animationscoop.com. Not something I regularly read. So thank you to Jordan for finding this. It's with the director of Tom and Jerry, Tim Story. And the questioner asks him about this scene. So here is the relevant Q&A here. The asker says, there's a moment involving baseball in the movie. And as I was listening to it, I'm going, that is Joe Buck. How did you get Joe Buck on board with this? And Tim Story responds, well, once again, what you love about this iconic property, that being Tom and Jerry, is that people know it. And as soon as you bring it up, there was never anybody that went, oh, no which is funny because that is almost exactly what you did. (laughs) When we brought up Tom and Jerry, you were quite dismayed to learn that Tom and Jerry was still an active concern, I think. (laughs) Um, But that was not the typical response. He continues. Everybody was always like, I'm in. That's what was fun to have Joe on it. And there were even things he says, this ball is crushed. We did a foul ball in the movie. So here he is clarifying that it's supposed to be a foul ball And he's like, Tim, I would never say that here. And I'm going, yeah, but that's your iconic saying. I got to hear you use it. He was game and a great sport for coming in and doing this for us. I'm so glad you recognize that. How do you do baseball without his voice? So this clarifies the fact that it's supposed to be a foul ball. However, it raises another question, which is that is Joe Buck saying not even this ball is crushed, that ball is crushed is what he says in the commentary. Is that an iconic phrase associated with Joe Buck in your mind? No. No.
1: No. <laughs> Not,
0: I, I, mean, don't,
1: I, I don't I guess I've think heard him, him say it, but Sure. I don't think of him as like a catchphrase guy. Like No. I don't think of him as having like a you know a, a signature a signature bit that he does, which right. isn't surprising because he's a national broadcaster, right? I, I yeah. feel like the the broadcasters that have a signature saying or, or yell or whatever it is that they do, they tend to be the part of the the local broadcasting team, which makes sense because you're trying to build rapport with an audience and like establish your rapport with the team, and so you want to it, telegraph an intimacy with the whole the whole situation that a national broadcaster doesn't need to have because they're supposed to be somewhat at more of a remove anyway especially if they're calling a playoff game. So mm-hmm. I I don't does Joe Buck think that this is a signature right. phrase of his? Well, I
0: don't think I don't think that this is associated with Joe Buck. It's not that distinctive a call. A lot no. of people say that ball is crushed, right? I, right. I, there's a scene in in Mr. 3000, the movie, where the announcer who is not Joe Buck, says that that ball is crushed. It, like, Matt vesgergeon says that ball is crushed in MLB The Show, I think. I mean, people say it. A lot of balls are crushed. I don't think anyone owns this one. So... That was weird. I mean, yeah, Joe Buck's voice is iconic, Sure. But the phrase, that ball is crushed, you got to have Joe Buck say that? That's his catchphrase? I don't think so. So kudos to Joe Buck for raising the objection here because we were wondering, did he object to the fact that he was supposed to say big Alex Gordon? We don't know. I sort of suspect he threw that in there himself just as a joke, but He was objecting to the fact that he was supposed to say that ball is crushed if it's supposed to be a foul ball, so good for him. But then he went along with it. I guess he was like, well, these people think that that ball is crushed is something I'm known for saying. You know Joe Buck, he's the guy who says that ball is crushed, so he just had to say it. But anyway, this clears up the confusion to some extent about whether this is supposed to be a home run ball or a foul ball, although, again, if they wanted it to be a foul ball, they should have chosen a foul ball. <laughs> I think right. they should have chosen a batted ball that actually went into the stands there so that this would not be quite so confusing.
1: I just, look, I don't know the director of this film. <laughs> 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 we are not acquainted. But I feel like if I were given feedback from an iconic broadcaster, that right. that's not a thing I say, that I would go, look, I know, I know about, animated cats and mice and i'm yes. i even know each of their names and don't get it wrong but you know about baseball so i will i will handle knowing about the the animated cat and mouse and exactly. i will leave it to you to tell me what you would say in this call and then i would have him say that if it right. were me as Take the, the note to the yeah. story yeah, yeah. I'd be like, "Oh, I'm so glad that you're here." Literally, Joe Buck to clear to clear up <laughs> what it is that you would say in a moment like this on a broadcast.
0: Yeah, right. So the fact that it is evidently intended to be a foul, Paul. Some people wrote in to say that they read it as a, a Bartman reference. Which, if so, let Bartman live. Yeah, well, Go easy, yeah. And Bartman, he's had enough.
1: Yeah, we don't need to. We don't need to continue to jab at him. He's been jabbed enough for many yeah. lifetimes.
0: Yeah. Anyway, we're up to, what, six, seven complaints about this 30-second baseball scene. So it, I it hope it was worth it. <laughs> on a per-second basis, on a rate basis, I think this is one of the worst baseball scenes that I've seen in a movie. It's not the worst, but just in that it crams in so many inaccuracies in such a short span of time. It's it's truly impressive.
1: <sighs> I, I just will say once again, our rates are reasonable. <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah contact us podcast at fangrafts.com. any aspiring producers who are working on baseball scenes okay last thing i wanted to mention before we get to our guests we're going to talk to our guests or at least one of our guests about farm systems and productivity of prospects and just wanted to mention a little study that baseball america did last month that was done by kyle glaser and he looked at baselines for basically how many major leaguers and how many good major leaguers are in the average farm system at any given time, which I think is just a handy thing to know and to keep in the back of your mind. So I I thought I would just link to it and briefly mention his findings here, which were determined with the help of friend of the show, Dan Hirsch of Baseball Reference and the Baseball Gauge. So Kyle found that The average number of future major leaguers in a farm system at any given time is 35. I don't know if that sounds high to you, sounds low to you. And this is looking from 1998 to 2012. So 98 is when we got 30 teams. 2012 is not so recent that there would be many players in the farm system at that time who are going to debut but have not yet. So 35. Now... I assume that that could include relievers who are Mm -hmm. just sort of shuffling uh, the back of a roster. And Kyle mentioned, in fact, that the end of this time period that he looked at seemed to have the most, which could reflect maybe usage patterns of players at the back of rosters. I don't know if this includes, the article doesn't specify, but players who have already Made their major league debuts, you know, like veterans who are still hanging out in AAA. If they make the majors again, I, I would hope or assume that those players were excluded from this, but it doesn't specify, so I'm not completely sure. But that's a, a decent number, you know, mm-hmm. 35, but that's any caliber of player. They could be up for a cup of coffee, they could get one at bat. Now, if you limit it to players who become regulars, Roughly equivalent to three seasons in the majors. So 1,500 at bats, 450 innings, or 150 appearances. Then the number falls to 11 in the typical farm system in a given year. And if you limit it to future all stars, then it's three to four. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of calibrate your expectations, you know, and this can vary widely depending on the system and the year. So They do have the the minimums and the maximums, like the 2012 Rangers, who had a a pretty stacked system. They had 58 future major leaguers in their organization at that time. The 2007 Yankees, who I would not have thought of really as a, a hotbed of prospects, but they had 21 future regulars. The 2011 Royals, who were known for having a very stacked system that eventually paid off. In pennants and World Series for them, they had eleven future All Stars at the time. So those were sort of the high water marks for each of those metrics. But they have the the team by team minimum and maximum, and it does fluctuate quite widely. But just to keep in mind, like you know, you're looking at your system and you're trying to imagine which guys will be good and how many of them will be good. This is about the haul that you would expect. You know, three to four good players might come from the typical system.
1: I I don't know that those numbers really surprise me. That seems that seems right and that distribution, you know, the the sort of subpopulations within each of those buckets seems right to me. I'm mm-hmm both horrified and gratified to know that there is no compelling reason for our list to be so long. Um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you just do a top 10? Well, (laughs) so I think that 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 sort of makes a a good amount of intuitive sense to me and that there would be variation like year to year and system to system. Um, Seems like it would account for natural variation in the player population in terms of their uh, innate talent and then variation in the sort of talent of, the, of each player development staff to sort of help mm-hmm. guys maximize that um, but yeah it, it is nice to like put some some heft and rigor behind it yep. because I feel like we often are kind of casting about on, on that question so it's nice to have right. something real to kind of hold on to and the way that they have categorized this I think is useful too because I think that what you're aiming for is that every guy is an all-star right or every guy is a regular but um, mm-hmm. the up down guys have, have utility too and so keeping track of them is I think also useful so yeah yeah,
0: yeah. the nadir was seemingly the late 90s brewers that the 99 brewers had the fewest future major leaguers at 15 and the fewest regulars at just two in both 1999 and 2000 so those were the low water marks for these measures here and There are previous studies that have been done by BA and also by Jeff Sullivan that have found that about two thirds, 60% to two thirds of future stars, like all stars or three war or better players were on top 100 lists. So, Mm -hmm. you know, roughly a, a third of very good players were never ranked on top 100s or, you know, I guess it depends on which top 100 you're looking at, but In general, there are quite a few very good players who slip through the cracks. So it's not necessarily the players you expect are going to be the good ones who are the good ones. And of course... Not all of these players will make the majors with your team or be good for your team because a lot of them will move around or they'll be trade bait or whatever. They'll blossom late. So it's not that you can count on having all of them for the benefit of your team. It's just that amount of talent is in the typical system at any given time. Now, I don't know how this will apply to the post contraction miners right? right This is the pre downsizing of the miners' baseline, so now that you have fewer teams, you know i I would guess that this won't change the numbers that much just because, like the players who will get winnowed out will be the ones who were least likely to make one of these lists, but there will still be some who. Get cut just because, you know, there was no room for them at that time and they might have made it if there had been more rooms at the inn. So I think these numbers would probably decline, but not significantly so.
1: I think that that's right. And that having a, a general sense of what that number might be but uh, but not being able to specifically say these five guys, like these are the right. careers we missed out on, I think is part of what is so um, frustrating about the contraction because you, you know that it's probably someone and the eventual caliber of that player we can't say because we don't have their actual careers as sort of a counterfactual to point to. And so... I know, and I don't know if this is um, particularly productive on my part, but I know that my instinct in that moment is to backfill them with like, we have abandoned Mike Trout by the wayside. And I think <laughs> that that is unlikely because, you know, you knew pretty early like that guy's good. But yeah. it it is tempting to sort of fill in the, the, the lines with someone who's an all-star. And most of those guys probably aren't, but I think that we can we can pretty safely assume that at least some of them would have had some kind of a major league career and we won't know exactly who or how many and it feels like we're, you know, we're leaving stones unturned at a time when we have all these tools that help us unturn them and and then dig deep. I don't know what I'm actually going for with that metaphor, but so it, it can feel, I think, really unsatisfying that there are guys out there who could be on a big league roster even if they are only on it, you know, Up and down while they have options Mm -hmm. And that we're just not going to see them So that's kind of a bummer
0: Yeah The only systems during this period That had no all-stars at all Were the 1999 Rays And the 2012 Phillies At least so far Which, uh Might go part of the way toward explaining why the Phillies have not broken out post-rebuild the way that everyone hoped the prospects at the time. Many of them have not developed exactly as planned, so those systems had no all-stars at all. Very sad.
1: Yeah, that is sad, and it's you know they they make every team have an all star, so it's like <laughs> right.
0: That's the thing. There are a lot of all stars these days, and they're just more and more all the time.
1: You couldn't you, you couldn't break in with Miami or yeah. something like that's yeah. unkind.
0: You couldn't be the second injury replacement or right. the lone all star from the worst team. Yeah, your
1: your midsummer vacation couldn't be disrupted by a phone call
0: <laughs> right. for shame. I will link to this research if you want to see where your team ranked, although it is behind the BA paywall. All right, so we will take a quick break, and we'll be back with Alex Spear, talking about the Red Sox, followed by Trent Rosecrans on the Reds.
1: The town hall clock is for this child, no one there to ask that time, like everything else they all gone away. The
2: closest shop hangs up its sign.
0: All right, we are kicking off today's team previews with the Boston Red Sox, and we are joined by our pal, Alex Spear of the Boston Globe. Hello, Alex. Welcome back. I feel welcomed when I'm referred to as a pal, and I would like to I would like to reciprocate and say hello, pals. Good. I'm glad it's mutual pal status. So you wrote a book not yet two years ago now that was called Homegrown: How the Red Sox Built a Champion from the Ground Up. We talked to you about it at the time. and I noticed that quite a few of your characters are no longer employed by the Boston Red Sox. There's been quite a cast change and that has continued up until the the past few weeks or days even so What kind of toll has that taken on the fan base? Just anecdotally, it seems like there have been a lot of disenchanted Red Sox fans, not just because of the Mookie departure, but because of subsequent departures and just because of the results of the team. But really, what does it do to a fan base when you build around a core, that core flourishes, you succeed with that core, and then a lot of that core is very quickly and unexpectedly dismantled?
3: Yeah, it's pretty striking. The paperback edition is coming out in April and it should have been renamed How You How How a Champion Was Taken <laughs> Apart from the Top Down. Right. Um it's uh you know, it's it is extreme, right? Like the you know, the cover of the book is Ben Intendi. The back cover is Ben Intendi Bradley Betts all gone. gone. All yeah. gone. <laughs> um and it's it is startling, right? Because these were all players who were in their prime. So you have historically, right, up until let's say the last 5 or 10 years You would expect the identity of that team to have some continuity uh maybe more continuity than discontinuity over the course of another half decade or so uh and instead you know it is uh it is three years it's two and a half years removed from the best team from the most successful team in red sox in red sox history the 108 game winner that stormed through the postseason with all of these kind of um with these likable players who had grown up who had gone through struggles who had uh, their their narratives were familiar. It wasn't just the fact that they were really good players, but also that there was kind of an emotional investment over the course of having seen these players grow over the course of, you know, three to five to seven years. And that's gone. And so I think it's jarring. I, I think that there's, I think that it's very hard for people, for for people to assume that a group that they don't know is going to be successful because they don't have, there's an absence of kind of empirical, uh, grounding for such an assumption when you're bringing in all kinds of disparate parts. And frankly, um, I, I do think that it's awfully hard to create the interpersonal dynamics in a baseball team, in a clubhouse to, you know, to to quote unquote gel when you have extreme turnover. More than half of the 40-man roster uh, is now new since High and Bloom was hired in October of 2019. And I, I think that one of the things that I thought about a lot with the book was the idea that it takes not only a critical mass of a core to be assembled but then typically it requires time for that core to kind of take shape um into interlocking parts and i realize that that seems you know that can be exaggerated that's the chemistry problem that has been dealt with ad infinitum but you know if you look at how most of the homegrown cores that have one most of the cores that have one over the course of the last decade really back to ever since the 2013 red sox they had stable identities over the course of multiple years before putting themselves in a position to be elite contenders but on a visceral level from the fans it sucks (laughs) people (laughs) spent money on jerseys and you know and they you know and kids like you know kids got you know my kids got got used to seeing you know seeing guys who they were on a first name basis with jackie and mookie and you know guys like that they still have Xander, uh, you know, they still have Rafi Devers is a vestige of that, uh, of that championship team, but it's jarring. If they end up being good, then I think that all of that jarring stuff gets smoothed out. But until then, it remains kind of a turbulent period in the franchise.
1: I guess maybe we can use that as a, a springboard to talk about some of the guys who are still here, and I feel a little bit bad for Red Sox fans because we, you know, we gave the organization grief for some of their moves, <laughs> and um, I think that some of that grief was justified. But there there have been bright spots for Boston fans over the last two seasons, and one of them is Bogarts. I don't think we need to dwell overly long over his last two years. They obviously merited a large extension, um, but I want to ask you what the state of him is right now because I know coming into spring, he's been dealing with a bit of a shoulder issue. So what is his sort of timeline? Do they expect him to be ready for opening day? And um, what are your expectations for him in in 2021?
3: The Red Sox seem not to have any concerns about his availability for opening day and think that this is just related to a shoulder program uh, and a throwing program that was rendered strange by, uh, by being in a pandemic and, you know, in the pandemic protocols in Aruba and having kind of tried to make up for lost time by throwing too much too quickly. But um, I think that there's, I, I don't think that Bogarts's uh, shoulder is viewed as a long-term concern for the coming season. I, I think that the questions about Bogarts is the one, is like the ballast, right? Like this is the guy who's been with them in the big league since 2013 uh, and whose track record suggests a likelihood of very good production and frankly, very good health. Uh, because. He's been very durable throughout uh, the course of his big league career. I, I think that the, the questions that will form with him tend to be for beyond the 2021 season, whether it's longer term positional stuff or whether it's his opt out may be coming into view for after the 2022 season. But short term 2021, I, I, they aren't at the point of having significant concerns.
0: So I know you just wrote about J.D. Martinez, who had a very atypical season last year. We're used to seeing him be one of the best hitters in baseball, and he was not good at all. And he's someone who has a very you know, rigorous routine and likes to prepare in a certain way, and pandemic baseball interfered with some of that. So what did he identify as the root of his problems, and does he believe he can correct them?
3: Yeah, Ben, as you've uh, as you've, you know, documented well, like Martinez is one of the is really one of the kind of trailblazers of the of the self-made, you know, of the made self-made, self-made swing for launch. And uh so someone he is perhaps the most scientific hitter in the big leagues in terms of uh believing in kind of perfecting each of the uh, of the sub movements of his swing so he took it apart this offseason. he examined deeply every part of uh every part of the kinetic chain in order to try to figure out where things had broken down for him and why why it was that last year he was flying open and you know and just making a lot of weak contact uh, or no contact with fastballs uh, which he had typically pulverized in the previous couple of years and it was at the very root of the swing namely uh namely that right ankle he had found that uh that he had kind of gotten in the habit of of coming off of it too quickly, not putting enough, uh, not putting enough of his load on, uh, on that back foot when he was swinging. And so as a result, everything broke down from there, particularly his hips coming over. So, you know, as is kind of his want for a swing obsessive dude, uh, he just swung and swung and swung over the course of, uh, the off season. And, you know, he would have that he would have morning sessions where he was swinging 200 to 300 times with, uh, you know, interspersed with like, round watch video to figure out how every movement looked and align that with how it felt and then have another round in order to either try to revise or to try to uh to try to lock in and uh so he comes in as a more as as a relatively confident guy i was told by tim hires the sitting coach that last year he didn't have a single day where he felt happy with his swing or how he felt and uh at this stage of the spring, he's expressing happiness with how he feels and, uh, and how his swing feels. Who knows whether or not that what that yields when, uh, when the lights flip back on because the Red Sox were optimistic about how Martinez might perform at the start of, uh, at the start of the 2020 season in July. So there's always, he's 33. We, we always, you kind of need to go show it. But in terms of having going in with a positive state of mind and, uh, and kind of the work. That would give him optimism that, that has been accomplished
1: I want to stay with position players for a second and, and talk about Rafael Devers And particularly his defense So I think there had been a concern As he was coming up with a prospect That he would eventually have to move off of third That he was sort of not sustainable there And then he had this At least by the the metrics And I think that it was backed up By watching him in the field This great 2019 Especially relative to what he had uh, Managed in the field previously And then 2019 2020 comes along and most of the defensive metrics do not like him some a little bit some very much and I know that there was a bit of regression at the plate too so again it's hard to know exactly how to put a 2020 season in context just given how short it was but how has he talked about that sort of defensive regression and was was this I imagine a point of emphasis for him going into the offseason to try to return to um, at least his 2019 levels
3: so with devers there's been this long-standing conversation and meg you're absolutely right kind of talking about the longer term conversation that's existed with him really since the moment that he signed as a 16 year old and so there there was uh there's always been concern about his conditioning and how that's whether or not he's going to be diligent enough rigorous enough in order to stay at the position or if ultimately it'll make him move across the diamond cuz he has you know the, the components are good he has pretty quick feet pretty good first first step quickness his hands his movements work well particularly to the left side in in a vacuum he has a strong arm it's not always terribly accurate Uh, particularly when he's imprecise in his footwork but you know that can be a sign of youth as much as anything else he still is a pretty young dude but last season uh the those the conditioning questions that existed were amplified by the pandemic the red sox felt fine about how he came into spring training during the shutdown in the dominican he didn't really have places to go in order to follow a full routine uh, a full kind of strength and conditioning routine or to seek out baseball activity so by his own admission he came into the you know into the july reboot kind of out of shape and then he you know he was working to play himself into shape and early in the regular season in mid-august he uh he had a a somewhat significant ankle sprain crossing the bag in a game against uh against the orioles that stuck with him for the rest of the season so between those two things uh it I think it, it it messed up his defense pretty thoroughly. Um you'll hear divided opinion about the degree to which it messed up his offense as well. He got off to a terrible start. A lot of people got off to terrible starts, because it's a weird thing to try to, you know, to try to jump in on the timing, uh on the timing of the season after uh after the shutdown. And uh he then started hitting really, really well right around the time that he uh that he suffered that ankle sprain in uh in mid-August. Hit very well for most of the most of the remainder of the season, right up until the end, when it did seem that the ankle injury had had become more significant. But in in terms of moving forward, you know, best shape of his career, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, uh, he he did follow a very different offseason conditioning program. He stayed in Boston for a while uh, so that he could work out under the supervision of the team and make sure that ankle got healthy. He then took his uh took his training from the dominican to a training facility in tampa bay a few weeks before the start of spring training and um the red sox feel good about the condition that he's in uh right now and you know again it's kind of a okay well we'll see we'll see when the lights go on but he's young it was a weird year it was a you know and some of the some of the biggest concern like some of the things that he that are that have always been the biggest concerns about him were perhaps made you know they were made harder to manage by virtue of the pandemic.
1: We are wildly sympathetic to people's conditioning regressing in 2020. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I want to ask about the outfield, the post Bets Bradley Benintendi outfield. You've got Verdugo in center. You've got Mike Trout impersonator Hunter Renfro. You've got Franchi Cordero, who just recovered from COVID. Obviously, tough act to follow with the guys who have left and, you know, defensively. I don't know if there's anyone who could measure up to what the Red Sox have traded away here or lost for other reasons. But how is Verdugo expected to do in center and with the other guys, especially Cordero? What are they hoping to get out of him? Because he's been something of a a cypher, a, a high ceiling cypher. Right. The
3: uh right. Franchi Cordero is like a myth waiting to become a reality, I think, in terms of his uh in terms of the shape that his career takes place. Like he's uh, you know, incredibly gifted, uh someone who you can imagine being an above average defensive outfielder because he's got speed and who has been on the field so little and has dealt with so many injuries that there's a pretty good chance that he'll play is below average, although you don't know. He's he's been he's been a guy who could play all three outfield positions, but it it's also Kind of interesting to think about whether or not he'll, you know, he's just starting workouts today, uh, today being March 5th, after having dealt with a COVID infection uh, before coming over to Fort Myers. And uh, so he's hopefully fully recovered from that. But, uh, but it, uh, it, it, I don't know, I, I guess I ask a little bit, uh, I ask myself a little bit about whether or not he's going to be full go for the start of the regular season. And in terms of the other guys, I think that Verdugo is a very good outfielder. Like Verdugo, in terms of measurable stuff, like that we try to make sense of with Statcast, you know, the, his his jumps are really good. He's got a terrific arm, which doesn't show up in a in a statistic like outs above average, but it does uh, it does increase his overall defensive impact. I think that he's he's a he's a very you know he's he's a really good instinctual baseball player, someone who just has a re- an excellent feel for the game, and so and I think that there's every reason to think he'll be at least fine in center field. And, you know, I I don't think it's outlandish to think that there's a chance for him to play as somewhere between like a 50, you know, on the scouting scale, like 50 to 55 player in center field, maybe, maybe right at 50, but I I don't think that he'd be a detriment. Whereas he'd be well above average, I think in, uh, in the outfield corners because of a different peer group. So I I think that they're happy with him in either center or right field. Kike Hernandez somewhat fascinatingly like he and verdugo used to share an outfield plenty of times uh with the Dodgers and whenever they did uh kike hernandez was actually in the uh in the was was always in the higher priority position uh whether it was you know he would he would take center or he would take right field with verdugo uh accommodating him by being either in a corner in, in either of the corners whether or not that's because hernandez feels more comfortable i wouldn't think that the side of the field would be that important to him because he also plays shortstop and in third base and everything else. So my guess is that the Dodgers just viewed him as a slightly better outfielder. He's kind of extraordinary in terms of his uh, his defensive gifts at virtually every position on the field. So I, I think that he'll probably spend some time in center with Verdugo spending some time in right adjacent to him, especially on days where the Red Sox are facing a left-handed starter. But I, these are a lot of again, this is this, this is the strangeness of this Red Sox team, right? Like this outfield group that was uh, such a foundational part of its identity and where you had Ben and Bradley Betts uh, together for really, you know, three plus solid seasons on an, uh, virtually every game. All of a sudden you have this you're going to have this almost th- this kind of like heads, this spin the wheel approach to how you line them up because they're the Red Sox are still trying to get to know all of their personnel right there. They have a good feeling about Mike Trout impersonator Hunter Renfro and his ability to play either outfield corner, maybe in a pinch, some center field, but they they're still waiting to kind of confirm that by getting to know him and by seeing how the dynamics play between uh, between those outfielders. So I, I do think there's it's a group that will have to become familiar with you know, with one another. And uh, that'll that'll probably take a little bit of time. And perhaps that adjustment period will will drag down to some slight degree uh, the overall kind of collective performance of the outfield relative to uh, guys who know each other really well and have a more precise range sense of like where the edge of each other's range is.
1: I was going to ask you about one of the other signings uh, that they did here, which is, you know, another sort of Swiss Army knife guy in Marwin Gonzalez. How do you anticipate that he's going to be deployed? Because it is it does seem like they have increased their sort of overall versatility with some of the additions that they've brought in here.
3: Yeah, it's difficult to ask a question of people around the Red Sox without hearing the word versatility in the answer. So uh, that's, uh, you know, it's they're they're they're. Winning the versatility war, I suppose, when you sign Marwin Gonzalez and Kike Hernandez in the same in the same off season, and uh, and for good measure, just throw in a Danny Santana, why not? But uh, Marwin Gonzalez uh, had had been kind of the uh, had had spent a couple of years as uh, as the the great uh, Swiss Army knife of uh, of, of baseball rosters. I, I think that he's kind of moved down to being it'll be interesting to see how many positions he plays that aren't corners at this point and really you know how much second base they would still feel comfortable with him getting there are some evaluators who are very very much down on the idea of him playing in the outfield uh at this point whereas he had been uh, a pretty good outfield option Alex Cora has talked about him in both of the outfield corners at this point some people are like maybe left field at, at Fenway would be viable but beyond that i think that there's a chance that it's a bit of a reach He's certainly going to spend some time uh, at first base against uh, against right hand against uh, uh, especially against right handed pitching as, uh as a contributor to work with Bobby Dahlbeck uh, as he gets acclimated to the big leagues. I, I would guess that you'd probably see him mostly at first base giving Devers days off at uh, at third base, maybe a little bit of left field, maybe a little bit of second base depending on where they want Kike Hernandez to play at any given time. But yeah, I, I think that the, the number the, the days of seeing him just fill it up with, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine in the baseball reference uh, position list are probably over.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned Bobby Dalbeck. I want to ask about him. He slugged 600 last year, which uh, is not entirely unrealistic for Bobby Dalbeck. There are minor league levels where he slugged 600. However, he also struck out in about 42% of his plate appearances. And it's tough to do both of those things at the same time. I'm going to take a wild guess that he is not a true talent 394 BABIP hitter. (laughs) So what will we see from Dalbeck this year and beyond? He's a he's a pretty he's a really smart, like really
3: cerebral hitter who's really aware of what he's doing at the plate in ways that you'd like to believe translate to to a kind of adaptability. And certainly in his minor league career did just that. It's actually interesting because you point out the 42 percent strikeout rate, which is ridiculous. Um, However, it also mirrors the strikeout rate that he had in his first full professional season in the minor leagues. When with Single A Greenville, he struck out forty two percent of the time, and then dropped that into the I think mid to high twenties by the twenty nineteen season, as he'd been moving up levels. So he is clearly someone who's capable of making certain adjustments in order to in order to you know to get some control over his strikeout rate. Because I I, I tend to agree the the likelihood of being a uh, a really valuable contributor when you're punching out in almost half of your at bats, man that that. That takes something. So I would say that the Red Sox are pretty optimistic about his intelligence and his him finding an approach to allow his power to play more frequently with uh, with less with less swings and misses. It is worth noting that in the first couple of days of uh, of spring training, he's hit a few home runs, all of which have gone to right center. So perhaps he's giving himself um, an extra he's finding ways of like of taking that extra millisecond in his swing decisions. Ah, uh, to give himself a better chance of uh, of making contact, because he's a guy who, even without full extension, it has the strength to be able to uh, to you know knock the ball out of the park.
1: Perhaps this presages our our answer here, but it it strikes me that we've gone this far into the podcast and have not yet asked you about Chris Sale and what his timeline for return is. So, how is his rehab going, and when do you expect to see him on the field in Boston?
3: Chris Sale has decided to embrace the now. As should we all in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that you know the 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 rehab is there, there was a there was a little bit of a setback in uh, in January when he had like a stiff neck. He also got COVID in January, so uh, so that slowed him down by a couple of weeks. The net result of which is that I think that a best case scenario for him is kind of midsummer. I don't think it would be shocking if it took him until maybe the second half to pitch in a, a big league game. This year, but I think that there's there's a, a generally uh, ruddy outlook regarding uh, regarding the state of his arm and uh, and how everything is going in terms of the actual throwing. He has yet, at least to the best of my knowledge, sitting here a thousand miles from Fort Myers. He has yet to uh, he has yet to actually throw off of a mound since undergoing Tommy John surgery almost exactly a year ago. But that time seems nigh.
0: Yeah. And what about the rotation beyond sale? Because that was an issue, to put it lightly, last year. Because of the absence of sale, because of the absence of Eduardo Rodriguez, and just because of the absence of any other really good pitchers to serve in their stead, the Red Sox had the worst war by any starting rotation in baseball, according to Fangrass last year. So Rodriguez hopefully back, Garrett Richards in the fold, Martin Perez. Is there hope for a better performance here?
3: Well, I, I think that there's there's a, a high likelihood of a right? It's uh, it's difficult to, to do much worse. Um, yes. And uh, especially when I mean, you consider that the guy who they had initially. So they they made the decision to trade David Price on the like, while they're knocking on the door to spring training. OK, so they're down to so there was going to be an open competition for the fifth starter spot. And uh, they they hadn't really been able to go out and sign, a you know, to sign quality major league depth in order to in in order to address that spot and they just they had an open competition of guys who were relatively unproven starters at the big league level but then they have sale going down they have Eduardo Rodriguez with the kind of the frightening covid followed by a myocarditis and infection of the heart and so then all of a sudden Ryan Weber was their number three starter to open the season behind Nate Aldi and, uh, and Martin Perez and Ryan Weber was designated for assignment and outrighted without being claimed after the, uh, after the season. So that says a lot about what their rotation was last year. And in fact, there are a bunch of guys who were, you know, who were outrighted and, and just designated for assignment after last season, who had been their primary starters. So that's not good. But at the end of last season, they were able to make some moves to address some of their depth. They added Nick Pavetta, who at least has, you know, upside and really interesting stuff in in kind of a stat cast vacuum and whether or not he's able to employ that to perform at a high level, that'll be awfully interesting to see. Uh, Tanner Houck was very good at the end of last season in his first exposure to the big leagues, but he was very good while using four-seam fastball, two-seam fastball in slider, but without benefit of a real true, you know, second off-speed pitch. So it'll be interesting to see if his splitter takes a step forward to allow him to be better. Uh, the addition of Richards was a significant one, at least in terms of giving them a, a guy who's performed at a high level in the past, who was okay with the Padres. Although I also think it's worth noting that last year in the postseason, when the Padres really needed a starter, they kept Garrett Richards in the bullpen. So probably need to you know figure out exactly why that is. <laughs> and the Red Sox have added a lot of depth. You know, the Matt Andreezis of the world who can who can serve as kind of a swing man, getting a guy, you know, a rule five roll of the dice in Garrett Whitlock, who has at least multi-inning potential, may help them span the gap while they're while they're hoping for some development of their prospects. So on paper, they look deeper this year than they did last year, even while they wait for sale and while they try to figure out exactly what kind of Durability Eduardo Rodriguez is going to have over the course of the coming season, but there's not, it's still a rotation without a lot of certainty. I think it's one without, with a better floor, but it's, there's still a whole broad range of outcomes and uh, it's, it's not exactly one. You you might not pick it to be last in baseball in war for the coming year, but you probably wouldn't anticipate it being first either.
0: Well, the other component of the pitching staff wasn't much better last year. It seems like there's a theme here. Maybe there was a problem with pitching last season. Yeah, I think that was the case. The Red Sox bullpen was fifth from worst in Fangrass war in 2020, I believe. And again, there are some fresh faces here. They actually made a trade with the Yankees to acquire Adam Ottavino. Others are now here too. So... What's the outlook for this group, and is there an established back of the bullpen guy closer? Not that you necessarily need one, and not that the Red Sox have always gone into seasons having anointed one. But is that Matt Barnes again, or will that be sort of an open competition?
3: One of the interesting things to me about uh, Alex Cora's return is the fact that in 2019 he wanted to have a uh, he wanted to have a kind of fluid bullpen that was. Uh, that was uh, where roles were determined by leverage of situations, and he he backed off of that. He didn't think it worked very well. He thought that he he burned out Barnes uh, pretty, you know, in the in the first half of the 2019 season by constantly just throwing him in at uh, at uncertain at, at unpredictable times against the middle third of opposing teams' orders. Um, so Cora now talks about wanting to have uh, pretty established roles in the bullpen, and particularly like getting out of Eno you know, Clean innings, for instance, instead of bringing him in, uh, in bases in in kind of dirty situations as the Yankees often did. He also has talked about wanting to have a pretty, you know, a a, someone who is who who can anchor the ninth. And maybe there'll be days where he, uh, where he asks more of that person. But I I think that Barnes is probably the leading candidate. Uh, Barnes, it was a role that Barnes performed in at the end of last year. And so there was, uh, some acclamation, but there's not a whole lot of, you know, aside from the, I forget it was maybe around 10 save opportunities that he had last season. There there aren't a whole lot of guys with a ton of closing experience in the Red Sox organization save for save for uh Hiro Somaura who was just signed from Japan, but they want to give him time to acclimate to major league baseball and the ball and so they I think that they foresee lower leverage spots for him um at the uh, at the start of the year. So I think Barnes is probably the is probably the leading contender for that role of closer, but uh, especially because he's stood up and said, that is a role I would like, but
0: we'll see. Wanted to ask one more player-centric question, which is about Christian Vasquez, who has been one of the better hitting catchers in baseball over the past couple of years, and that is not something I saw coming. I always liked Christian Vasquez for his defensive contributions, but did not necessarily see a 115 WRC plus coming last year, or really isolated power marks, you know, at or near 200 over the past couple of seasons how did that happen and is that a permanent thing
3: yeah it's still it's a totally bizarre development because he's a guy who like the the upside had been like could be a really valuable nine hole hit and run guy uh, right. a couple of years <laughs> ago um and uh that I, if you talk to people about the about the beginning of his professional career and you know there, there was not raw power evident it was just a guy who had you know who had good hands as you might expect of a catcher who had just kind of uh who would just kind of like waffle balls into you know into shallow right field and yeah he's uh you know he he's pretty strong though uh and uh and so over time decided that he was going to overhaul a swing it's actually kind of funny though because he decided so after the 2018 season in some of his off-season work uh he you know he, he engaged in some different thoughts you know okay like swing on plane and uh, be able to drive the ball a little bit more and ask him so why did you go about this uh why, why did you pursue this change and he said well power is what gets paid of course he was saying this like after the year after he had signed a long-term deal with the red sox so you know <laughs> interesting timing to make such a decision but the thought process is there to drive the ball a little bit more i think that the his swing doesn't have so many like he has a, a compact swing that he can get some leverage into now the thing that's going to be interesting is seeing whether or not like he's he's one of the guys who you wonder was has he been a product in part of the flight of the ball in recent years and if so could he be kind of unduly could he see that his power numbers unduly dampened by the by the twin threats of humidors and uh and and a ball that may you know that may carry a little bit less i don't know uh but i i I do think that there's strength and there's you know there's enough under there's there's been enough evolution of how he swings to think that To think that he's not just going to be a, a hollow, he's not just going to be a hollow contributor who's delivering singles and maybe shooting a few doubles down the lines as was the case in the past.
1: You mentioned prospects earlier, and the organization's approach to some of the trades that they've done over the last 18 months has been sort of a mix, right, where they've had guys who are major league ready, and then they've also um, brought in some players who are further from needing to be added to the 40-man. I'm curious what the organization's approach to player development was last year. Obviously, they were able to sort of oversee the work that some guys did at the alt site and in instructs, but there were also just a lot of guys who had to work through dev at home. So how did they help or try to help them continue to make progress uh even in a year where they weren't able to enjoy a minor league season
3: hopefully better than the public school system did for my kids no, I'm, oh, I'm kidding <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kidding i'm kidding it was uh it was a valuable uh it was a valuable time uh, a year ago at this time to uh to become more uh, more intimately involved in uh, in the grade school education, but yeah, I think that on the player development front, the Red Sox tried to uh, tried to have a lot of much as many other teams did a lot of Zoom sessions. Whether it was dealing with mental skills sessions, trying to find out what kind of equipment guys had at home so that they could do as much as possible uh, to remain in shape and to uh, and to work out, finding out if there were um, places where they had uh, where they had opportunities to either hit or to uh, or to throw, and then having a lot of You know, a lot of a lot of text chains with minor leaguers and uh, and members of the player development staffers to say, yep, that looks pretty good. uh, Or to talk about some of the, um, you know, some of the components of the mechanical things that pitchers, pitchers or hitters were working on uh, to talk about areas of focus in terms of pitch development. You know, so I think that it was uh, <laughs> the the player development world was an exercise in remote education. Right. And uh, I, I think that the encouraging sign for the Red Sox and for a lot of other organizations, I guess, is that when they convened it uh, for instructional, you know, for instructional league and got to see a lot of those guys, a lot of them had actually bumped up their velocity and some of them had uh, had made progress in terms of ability, in terms of what what they were trying to accomplish, what they were. Uh, how they were executing with certain pitches, but again, this is you know, it's it's one thing to see that in a in a setting in that compressed instruct setting and to say, oh, that's you know, that's great, they they didn't miss a beat. But the the test of the minor leagues, it, so many like so many of the tests of the minor leagues require uh, the endurance component and you know, seeing how guys sustain performances over the course of longer periods of time, particularly well, particularly pitchers, obviously like position players who haven't ever played in. Full season ball tend to hit the wall as well in pretty dramatic fashion after the first half. But I I think that there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of wait and see, but I think that there's considerable optimism on the part of the Red Sox that, that the players who left the field at the end of the 2019 minor league season are going to, many of them, including many of their top prospects are going to have improved in material ways uh, by the time they return to quote unquote official games this May.
0: So Alex Cora is the man who will be managing all these players we'll be talking about. And he was not just welcomed back with open arms. It was, hey, don't come to us to interview. We will come to you. That's how much we want you. Does that surprise you at all, given the way that his name was sort of soiled and sullied by the various sign-stealing scandals? And also because of the fact that Heim Bloom was not with the Red Sox the last time that Cora was there. And has Cora been contrite? has he said that he's learned anything? Is there a lingering issue at all?
3: so I guess let's uh let's let's take that into let's take that into a few different pieces so uh, the first one about whether about like how we'll we'll go and we'll go and chase you is a little bit misleading because I think that uh, particularly Chaim Bloom had some misgivings about whether or not he thought that he wanted Cora to be his guy like I' have been told yeah, I, I very directly, yeah, <laughs> yeah i I've been told you know. Pretty, you know, at the start of the process, right, after they got through the season and decided and, you know, made and, and made their formal decision that they weren't going to bring back Ron Renneke, Uh I think the expectation uh, from a lot of Red Sox front office people based on how Chaim Bloom was talking about it was that Alex Cora was not going to be the manager and that um and that Bloom might have to be convinced otherwise. So, I, I you know, they they followed a pretty thorough process. Uh, more so than the other teams with managerial openings, um, in terms of vetting other candidates and interviewing them, but you know there was still a there was still a very strong sentiment inside of the Red Sox organization that, that recognized uh, what Alex Cora can mean to a team and how much he can do to draw out the best of a team. I also think that. By virtue of the fact that most of the egregious behaviors, right? Like most of the most most of the cheating occurred in Houston. And, you know, there was a general sense that he had actually been, you know, he had actually been compliant uh with uh in the eyes of the organization with with appropriate, you know, with with sign stealing rules. Even though the Red Sox were found to have to have engaged in some of the video replay sign sequence stealing, Cora was absolved of that, you know that that's a that's a different ball of worms but or can of worms but I think that uh I, I think that generally speaking the stain was related to Cora's time in Houston and so it felt like it it hit the Red Sox less directly uh it uh it did less to taint his time with the Red Sox at least for members of the organization and so getting beyond that like it was it was important for Chaim Bloom first to start with the conversations with Cora. It was like the, uh, the kind of nervous, uh, the, the nervous first date type, uh, pre-first date conversations. If those still happen, you know, I'm, uh, <laughs> right, we're, a, anyway, uh, this very complicated question of, of, of modern protocols and uh, human relationships. Anyway, I, I do think that Alex Cora was contrite in a way that convinced Chaim Bloom that he was comfortable working with him. Cora, I think, I, I would say that of the three people who were implicated, Uh, chiefly, you know, the managerial folks, uh, whether Hinch, Cora, or Beltron. Cora, I think, has been the most forthright in terms, especially publicly, in terms of saying, like, you know, I, what I did was wrong. Like, I, you know, I, I was, I engaged in things that I, you know, that I clearly regret that, you know, that I had to account for not only to the baseball world, which he cares deeply about. Um, but also with his kids and his family members and he's also said that you know he's also made clear that he doesn't believe that redemption quote unquote is possible right it's something that he has to uh that he recognizes has to be is necessarily a part of his wikipedia page moving forward so i, I think that he's been direct enough about that that they felt comfortable not only that he was uh that he was going to be you know that he'll do things accordingly that he'll be good about following. Rules and regulations, and moving forward, but also that he would be able to handle the pub any public blowback, and there will be public blowback, especially when they're on the road. I don't think that I think that there's general enthusiasm for him in Boston, but you know he's he's going to be he's going to hear it in some environments, and that was uh, that that was part of the conversation that the Red Sox had in, in their thought process regarding whether or not to hire him. But ultimately, they gained comfort with the idea that. You know, he's a, he's a pretty grounded dude who's like, who's aware of what's going on around him and, you know, comfortable enough in his own skin that he, you know, that he can kind of handle that.
1: I'm curious where the team sees itself in its own division. When you look at our playoff odds at Fangraphs, the Red Sox are actually in the middle of the pack ahead of the Rays, only by two games, I guess less than two games, but ahead of the Rays nonetheless, but they are still looking up at the Jays and the Yankees. So do they see themselves as in a spot to contend either for the East or for one of the wildcard spots, or are they sort of looking a little further down the road?
3: I think that there's probably going to like I I don't think that they're in the business of saying that they view themselves as uh, as not being competitive for the top of the division. But I, I do think that like it's it's really hard for any team that you know that uses modern analytics to look at at their roster and the Yankees and to crunch you know and to crunch ten thousand scenarios for the coming season and to conclude that they're uh, that they're on a par with uh, with the Yankees for the AL East. I think that they're you know I, I think that their hope is that they can be significantly better than they were a year ago when they were awful uh probably because of the uh, probably because of some of the pitching woes that you've mentioned before um largely because of those pitching woes so if they can get stable performance in their pitching staff i think that they view themselves as being uh, a competitive team that could uh that could position itself to can to compete for the wild card you know but but i do think that they're they've also been pretty you know and for boston surprisingly candid about the fact that they are, uh, they're at the point in their, you know, in their organizational overhaul, that they aren't doing anything that would compromise their longer term future, right? I, I think that there, Chaim Bloom has talked on a couple of occasions about how, regardless of what the performance is in terms of the standings this year, like his hope for this year is that by the end of 2021, it'll become, it'll it'll be reasonably clear who comprises the next core that's going to allow them to really be positioned for a sustainable divisional and championship contention. I, I think that they're open to the possibility of surprise. I, I alluded to the 2013 season earlier when the Red Sox had uh, their internal projections were as, uh, were as downtrodden as they've been for the team over the course of uh, the almost, I guess this is my 20th season covering them, over the course of that time. And they ended up winning the World Series and being the best team in baseball and Basically, going wire to wire, so they're they're open to the possibility that uh, things could coalesce in a way that that allows them to be uh, to be better than projections. But I think that there's also an, an awareness that you know they, as they've put it themselves, uh, they're not all in this year.
0: Well, that's the question about how they see themselves. As you know, we always end with the question about how you see them, which you have nailed in the past, but no pressure. So how many wins do you foresee in 2021?
3: I'm debating with myself whether or not to say 82 or 80 wins for them, because I think that, you know, I I think that the uh, the, that's that's kind of the. the magic of that's well you know what based on based on the bullish i have to be respectful of the bullish projections of fan graphs i'm going to go with that nice solid 82
0: all right well we always enjoy talking to you about the red Sox. you can find alex on twitter at alex spear you can find him writing for the Boston Globe. You can find the book Homegrown, which, as he mentioned, is coming out in paperback quite soon. We will let you know where you can find that. Thank you, as always, Alex. It is a delight, pals. <laughs> All right. From the Red Sox to the franchise formerly known as the Red Stockings, we'll be back in just one moment with C. Trent Rosecrans to talk about the Reds. my heart got a We have returned to talk about the Cincinnati Reds, and we are joined by tireless Reds reporter for the athletic, fearless BBWAA president and accomplished Star Wars scholar, C. Trent Rosecrans. Trent, welcome back.
2: Thank you. And also, still trying to figure out the mute buttons after a year of dealing with (laughs) all of this, apparently, because, (laughs) oh, Jesus. One of these days, one of these days, we won't need mute buttons. But yes, thank you. I think that is that's a short way of saying thank you, hello, thank you, oh my God, yes, <laughs> we're all just doing the best we can, Ben.,
0: <laughs> yeah. that's,
2: that's it in a nutshell, right?
0: Let's start with the most pressing question facing the Reds this year, which is have you and Sean Doolittle finalized plans for a Star Wars podcast?
2: No, but that would be awesome. It's funny on his introductory zoom, like I just start a baseball question and he's like. I thought it was going to be a Star Wars question. And, and, like, in my office, my background, I have, like, some vintage Star Wars stuff in my background. And I was like, we have time for that later, hopefully, Sean. I don't want to waste everybody's time because we will probably get into some super nerdy type stuff. Because, again, well, Ben, uh I I, I mean, not to derail this, but, like... I think you'd be better because like (laughs) seriously, like your recaps were awesome. I enjoyed those of the Mandalorian every week and I would much rather talk to you about the Mandalorian than baseball, but I, don't think that meg really wants to deal with that or and that's what not anybody else is here for but <laughs> anywho, no so that that's a long way of saying no. yeah
0: sadly that's not what we're here for today but <laughs> we'll we'll take it offline we'll start a side project if sean doesn't take you up on <laughs> an offer it sounds Wait, like that's all awesome. for it but
2: <laughs> yeah maybe i should uh mention that once if we ever get to like talk in person
0: yeah right you know nice. there
2: are people whose reds careers have Come and gone that I have <laughs> never spoken to in person, which is just completely odd.
0: Well, hopefully that will not be the case with Sean. While we're on the subject, I guess I will ask a serious question about Sean Doolittle, who is one of the few Reds editions of this season, and. He's coming off a a tough year, really a couple of down years by his standards, and I saw you tweet something about how he had dabbled in pitch design for the first time, which I thought was interesting because, you know, he's a a veteran guy and you think of him as a, a thinking person, and yet he hadn't done that until now and he's always been someone who's very reliant on his fastball. So once you get to a certain age, you might have to adjust. And so it sounds as if, based on your tweet, he is entering that second portion of his career. So what shape has the pitch design taken for him? What has he added, and where does he fit into this post-Rycel Iglesias late-inning bullpen hierarchy?
2: Well, I, I mean, a lot of that is we shall see exactly what it looks like You know, I I think he's kind of tinkering around with it, seeing what it does. He worked out here in Phoenix with, well, you know, Nate Irving is a guy who went to UVA, and I think they overlapped at UVA, who's a catcher and is the Reds bullpen catcher. But, like, Nate's a super interesting guy. Nate is not, you know, like, I think the bullpen catcher used to be just, like, a guy who's, oh, the old catcher that everybody liked, and he's hanging on and wanted to give a job. But he, he's not really that. He's very much into. He fits in with this Reds staff that is headlined by Derek Johnson, of course. But you know, with Kyle Bodie um, and the whole crew, so he's into all this. And he's he has he works out at a place here in Phoenix, and he got into the pitch design and all that. And you know, when you're a guy like Sean little who could throw that 95, that, that, that fastball that had that that natural movement up. Or, well, we know it didn't go up, but it appears to go up. You don't have to do that. People come come to, um, well, I guess you don't come to Jesus, but you come to science when you have to. You don't need to have faith in those numbers. Even if you do believe it, you don't have to rely on it until you have to rely on it. And that's kind of where um, Sean Doolittle's been. He is healthy, and I think that's a big part of it, the hope is. Right. so, But he'll fit in there, they hope. Near the back of the bullpen, not the very back of the bullpen. They, they will probably use Amir Garrett and Lucas Sims near the back of the bullpen to close out games. You know, David Bell was never really one. When, when he took the job, he was like, I don't really, I think the, your best relief pitcher should be getting the most important outs, not necessarily the last outs. Now, that's great and fine and dandy to say in theory, but a lot of pitchers, who get those last outs don't particularly like to look at it that way. And Raicelle Iglesias was one of those guys with Raicelle Iglesias gone. This is perhaps a reset where they can use that bullpen a little bit differently. And so it'll be interesting to see how they do that. So yeah, that's, that's a lot of words to maybe not answer your question.
1: I guess this is an opportunity for us to, to step back before we get into some of the the roster mechanics of this year and some of the guys who they did add to just talk about sort of the the Reds' general approach to this offseason, which struck many people as being motivated by austerity, right? So they they did not bring Trevor Bauer back uh, when he hit free agency. They let guys like Freddy Galvis and Anthony Descalfani go. They non-tendered Brian Goodwin and Archie Bradley, who had been trade acquisitions for them. There are these noted trades away uh, from the organization and i think that for for some of us who looked at what the reds did last year and were really excited at their seeming insistence on staking a claim to the central and really wanting to improve and get better this was somewhat disappointing and so to the extent that you're able to sort of parse the claims of of ownership what was motivating this approach and where do they really see themselves uh, in the competitive landscape of the central
2: well Basically, to save money. I mean, it it, it is pretty clear when they traded Raycell Iglesias, and there is the return player was Noe Alexander, and um, you know Nick Crawl is the GM, and he he's given he's he's in the press conference, and he says, "Well, he's a solid reliever," and that's what you say. I mean, if you, the billboard there's a billboard between the lines there saying ownership has given us a budget. I have to give a budget. What can I trim? What can right. I do? And I think there's a belief like, well, I if I can trim money, what can I do to keep my team okay? So basically, I think th- this team was, or Nick Crawl was given a charge to save a bunch of money. And I, ownership has not spoken. They've not said a bunch, but they, they've spoken through their actions. And their actions are saying, we don't want, we lost some money last year, and we don't want to lose money again. Losing money is worse than losing games to the ownership. Of. And so or I don't know. I don't know if it's losing money or not making as much money as expected. That's always the great questions. Only one team makes has to see us look at their books. So that is a little bit of uh the nomenclature is a little we need to watch our words there. But but the bottom line is the bottom line. And uh, this team, this ownership group, wanted them to watch their bottom line, so they got rid of Bryce Glacius. and they they kind of said, "Well, we could trim the bullpen. The bullpen is maybe where we can let this this group that we've invested in in the coaching and the development side work their magic. We feel like bullpens are kind of can be kind of a crapshoot, and we trust Derek Johnson to pull a bunch of rabbits." Here's your hat. We'll put a bunch of stuff in a hat. DJ, pull some stuff out of a hat. So that's kind of how I saw the offseason. And, you know, the the one of the more telling ones was Kirk Cassali. Kirk Casale is a guy, the catcher, that really had, when you look at it, what they were able to do last year, he was one of their more productive offensive players from that right-hand side. And he's a great guy behind the plate. And he wasn't going to be too expensive. What did he end up signing with the Giants? It's like costing $2 million. Easy for me to say. So they let him go. They did have Tyler Stevenson ready and said, well, we think Tyler Stevenson's ready. We can, save, we can trim $2 million here. And they're talking about just, it's like uh, trimming the garlic with the razor blade. And that's kind of what they were doing to get where they needed to be for that budget that was handed to them. I think they were just looking at those margins where they could do. And the bottom line is, this division isn't real good now if they were in a different division maybe they they just go full teardown but now you're like well if i trim here trim here trim here i can still be okay because really who in this division is that much better even on our trim down roster
0: yeah i was gonna read something that joshian wrote in his newsletter this week about the reds financial situation and their lack of activity this offseason he said, at the risk of being called a bootlicker, it seems to me that it's appropriate to go a little easier on the Reds' choices. There aren't very many teams in baseball who were hurt more by the fact or the timing of the pandemic. Starting in the 2018 to 19 offseason, they brought in Sonny Gray, Trevor Bauer, Nick Castellanos, and Mike Moustakas over the course of a year. The 2020 Reds were projected to have the highest payroll in franchise history, more than $150 million. The idea was to finally push a marginal team into contention and even the postseason energizing a great baseball city that had been turned off by six seasons of losing baseball— And then, of course, you know, the Reds just barely made it into that expanded postseason. But other than that, the plan failed through no fault of the Reds, really. It was that, you know, they couldn't have fans come to the field to see the team that they had invested in because of the pandemic. And they are in one of the smaller media markets in baseball. They didn't get revenue sharing, etc. You know, they're not going to get an attendance boost at the beginning of this season because of the semi-success of last year's teams. So Joe says uh, against that backdrop, a payroll decline of about 17% in 2021 doesn't seem all that unreasonable, although if you prefer to take the position that all owners are bad, I won't stop you. And he does go on to say that despite those maybe mitigating circumstances, the Reds are also in a position where they would have benefited as much as just about any team from making some investment into this roster. So. Even if you do sort of excuse the lack of spending, it's still a shame because it seems like they're going to suffer from their passiveness as much as any team that sort of sat this offseason out.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a well put by Joe, as usual. You know, you could just say, like, you know, if, if those marginal additions aren't going to hurt you that much, those marginal additions could actually put you a little bit closer. And a game here and there in this division could be in the playoffs. I guess it's understandable relative <laughs> to everything. As much to a lot of teams, this is a team that maybe it does make sense. They were really counting on, on last year being their year. They they built up to, to, to 2020 being the year just with those acquisitions and that being the team, that being a nice window. And, and they kind of put it together, and it, it all lined up for them perfectly until, I don't know, about a year ago today. <laughs> And, and it was looking pretty good, and, and then it just kind of fell apart. You know, I don't think they ever expected Trevor Bauer to come back because when they made the move in at the trade deadline of 2019, that was the chips in for 2020, saying, we're going to go, we think Trevor Bauer can be really, really good, and expecting him to probably leave and them to get a comp pick in return because they would offer him arbitration, he would sign elsewhere, they would get that comp pick back. And, you know, when you look at it, they gave up a a good prospect to Taylor Trammell, but they got Taylor Trammell as a comp pick. So they figured they would recap what they gave up in Trevor Bauer in a comp pick, because that's really what they gave up in in Taylor Trammell.
1: I think there's the general state of their finances, there's their approach this year but I think one thing that really seemed to hamper their ability to dominate last year was a an offense that we might call underwhelming and I think that we can pick at this in a couple of different places but the place I'd like to start is with Nick Castellanos who was one of their big signings uh, coming into the 2020 season who, again, we don't want to make too much out of 60 games and 242 plate appearances but had something of, a, of an anemic bat compared to what he had posted the two years prior, and I'm curious if you've heard what he attributes that sort of down offensive year to, because he's not going to blow anyone away with his fielding, so if he's not producing at the plate, it, it gets a little dicey for him, so what what does he attribute the struggle to last year, and what are your expectations for him in 2021?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people, the Reds are hoping it was that 60 game, it was just kind of a bad stretch, you know, because he started his first two weeks were, he was the best hitter in baseball for the first two weeks, and then he wasn't. But when you look at the batted ball stuff, his barrels were just up there, his exit velocity, all that. You know, you did see a rise in the strikeout numbers. As a team though, like, this is a team that had a batting average of balls in play. I don't have it right in front of me. I think it was like 246. It was, it was like the lowest easily since, since the mound was lowered. And this is just a team that just kind of felt like they had so much bad luck with all of this. You look all around and nobody, balls just didn't fall. These guys hit the ball hard. The team, talking to Alan Zenter, they've talked and they've put an emphasis on, hey, maybe don't hit the ball in the air as much, like re-emphasizing line drives, still hit the ball hard, line drives. Castellanos hit the ball hard. He was among the league leaders in barrels. But uh it just didn't translate. You know, you look at all the expected rate stats, and they're, they're much higher than what the actual rate stats were. And so that's where the team's like, well, you know, that's where that 60 versus 162 may have evened out. And I think a lot of that is wishful thinking, but I think there is some, when you go back and look at it, there's some real, there's some reason to believe that. There's some reason to go back and see. That's, that's, that's why those numbers exist. That's why the expected numbers exist because they're funny thing about expected things. They're expected.
0: You mentioned the drivelinization of the Reds. How has that manifested? How is that visible in terms of how pitchers prepare or what the pitching philosophy is? Are there certain things that the staff does as a whole that extend throughout the organization? I guess it would have been tough to tell last year when there were no minor league games going on. But from what you've been able to glean, how has that changed the pitcher's preparation and approach to development?
2: You know, you saw a lot of weighted balls last year in spring when I was actually in spring, and so it's been harder to see that when with the lack of access. I think where I've been able to notice it a bunch is more on the front office side when you see the guys they bring in and all the the free agents. You know, and there, a lot of these are the minor league signings. You know, the the uh, minor league signing with invite to to a big league camp, and when you look at all these guys, they all have a very similar profile, and, and they even have t-shirts. They have t-shirts made up. It's called the Cincinnati the, the and they look for that spin. That's something they have a profile, and we talked to Derek Johnson, and Derek Johnson said, look, listen, you know what I'm looking for, what we look for as a team is, is pretty obvious on look at all the publicly available stuff, and you can see that there is a trend. We look for guys with big stuff, you know. They have 12 guys in camp, 12 pitchers in camp who were first round picks. He said, you know, that doesn't mean that all these guys have every, their careers gone perfectly, but it does mean that there is something innate in these players that they had innate talent. And then you'll see a lot of these players who really buy in. I mean, TJ Antone, we were talking to Tyler Stevenson the other day, the, um, the catcher, catching prospect two years ago. Tyler Stevenson was catching T.J. Antone and was like, yeah, he was a 90, he was a sinker baller who's throwing 90. Well, the other night against the Dodgers, he's throwing 98 by Justin Turner because he bought in to a lot of this this driveline type stuff and has really worked hard and has increased his velocity. You go from a 90-mile-an-hour sinker baller to a guy who's throwing 98. And then – someone like Lucas Sims who was seen as kind of a bust with the Braves you get him in the hands of Derek Johnson and DJ says okay just do this and this and he's out here spinning his fastball and and his slider and he's one of the best guys in the game um as as a late inning reliever and he's elite and so much of this i think is finding people who fit and then <laughs> It's, it's so funny. Derek Johnson will talk about how he, he likes to play himself down. He goes, it's pretty simple. He, and, and we hear this all the time. He just says it every time. And all his pitchers will say it. They, they regurgitate it. And he says, be great at what you're good at. And so, like, with Luis Castillo, like, one of the first things he said is like, throw your change up anytime you want it. Cause it's a great pitch. Um, Kirk Casale once told me he called it a no shit pitch. Said, You know, and anything else, you just go, oh, no, shit. You put it down. You put down the changeup. Other guys could know it's coming. You throw it. It's really hard to hit, and it's not hard for him to call it. And so, you know, Amir Garrett is a guy who's – when Amir Garrett's coming in, you know he's probably going to throw the slider. It's still tough to hit. Sonny Graves' curveball probably is what you're going to see. Still tough to hit. So this is a team that really focuses on finding guys who are really good at something, and then accentuating it. And so what we've seen is the identification and the procurement of those people who can do something really special.
1: There's the challenge of bringing in sort of a new approach to player development generally, but everyone last year struggled to sort of keep their their prospects on track. I'm curious if you can talk about what the organization's approach was for the guys, not only who they were able to get into the alternate side or into Instructs later in the year, but for the guys who were at home, how did the organization approach trying to keep their development on track so they didn't just have a completely lost year?
2: Yeah, I think everybody struggled with that one thing that maybe the reds had especially on the pitching side was they had name brand recognition like it or not kyle Bodie is like i mean kyle Bode, drive driveline tm it's a big name in baseball and so for the reds they could say this is what we have we have it is it's almost built on an outsider perspective and so it's like these are the drills you can do as an outsider it was almost perfect timing for them. I mean, they were set up because he was an outsider and it was set up so that they you could do this on your own. You can do this with these weighted balls, what these programs are. You don't need a catcher. You don't need all these other things. You have these weighted balls. You have a wall. Go get it. You can do that. You know, a lot of this stuff that they had also on the hitting side. And with the buy-in that they had, and then they could point to a guy like TJ Antone that came off of the big leagues and they said, look, TJ bought in last year. He bought in in the off season. These are the results. And I think it was really helpful. And they brought guys into that alternate training site and they really kind of did a bit where they brought in a couple of those guys a little bit at the time, and that would be like a checkup. And you could kind of be like, okay, here's what we need you to do. You could check on them, do your measurables. And maybe give them some of those equipment that that you want the the weighted balls or whatever. It wasn't ideal for anybody, but I think they felt pretty good. And and talking to Kyle, Kyle was really pumped about what they were able to do, which is kind of interesting because well, Kyle's Kyle's usually pumped about whatever he is doing. I mean, Ben, you know that better than anybody. But he was really excited about some of the development they got. And then you talk about some of the more high-profile guys. I mean, like Hunter Green. Think about Hunter Green. He was coming off T.J. It was almost perfect timing for Hunter Green that he had T.J. in March of 19. So he never felt like rushed to get into competition. And some of those hiccups that we see with guys coming back from T.J. that he he was able to kind of ease into that rehab. And then we see him the other day in his first ever Major League Spring Training exhibition game. And he goes... His first three pitches were 101, 102, 103, which was uh, was pretty cool.
1: Yeah,
0: you mentioned Green, who was really lighting up the stat cast the other day. Are those numbers just where he sits? I mean, this is early spring training. Typically, you see pitchers gain velocity after that. So what sort of numbers are we going to see from him? And what role, if any, will he play with the big club? Uh,
2: Yeah, who knows where he's going to sit? And it's funny, like, it, it, it didn't look. Like I know this is this sounds stupid, but it didn't look 101, 102, 103. You know, again, the only thing I have to compare it to is is a Aroldus Chapman, and and I, I saw it. I mean that same mound. I remember the first couple times where you go, oh god, and you saw it. Greens is different, and and so I was like, is there something wrong with the gun there? But like everybody else's was right around where they normally were, and then we talked to Tucker Barnhart, and Tucker's like, "No, man." And they, he said, they had it set up because on their bullpens they have the Rap Soto, they have everything set up. Every bullpen is measured, everything. And he was like, in the bullpen, Hunter's sitting ninety-eight. He's like, that does not happen. It is very hard. I remember having this discussion with them last year when Michael Lorenzen was getting up to 95, and they were like, whoa. And they were just saying, in the bullpen, it's hard to get up to that because of the adrenaline, because of everything. The guys don't get up to that velocity in bullpens. And and Tucker was like, it's 98, and it just looks so easy. But he said, it, it comes on you, and it feels 98, ever 102, it feels hard. And so that's what it is. (laughs) I I think there is, that is so tempting to see that it's, that that is there and that that is so easy makes it tempting to rush. But I think there is so much potential there and it is such a weird history that he has 72 and two thirds professional innings since being drafted in, in 2017 that he still needs a lot more development, and he hasn't pitched above low A. That, yeah, he could come in and, and just pump in fastballs, but is there something else that could happen? Could they, they want him to be a starter? They need him to do that development, to, to develop. I don't know that you rush that. And um, I, I could really, I would expect him, honestly, to start at high A. Uh, the other benefit of him starting at high A. Is that that is in Dayton, Ohio, 45 minutes up the road from Cincinnati. And you can keep an eye on him. You have everybody close right there. You have it all right there. And and that would be the natural progression. Now, you, maybe he doesn't stay there too long and then he goes to Chattanooga and double A. But I, I don't think you want to rush it because there is still work to do with those other pitches and he is still coming off to Tommy Johnson.
1: I think another guy who had kind of a, a, a lost season, if we want to call it that, was poor Mike Moustakis, who just. Could not, <laughs> uh, could not seem to either be healthy or be perceived as healthy. Right, he had a quadriceps bruise and a foot contusion and a false COVID test, and it all just amounted to a pretty tough year for his first year with the team. And so, I I want to ask if there's anything beyond just the strangeness of his season that we can attribute his down performance to, and then ask you for the, you know, for the times when he was on the field, how the Mike Moustakis second base uh, experience struck you because they seemed pretty willing as the Brewers had been to just you know put him at second and see how it would go and with Suarez at third I don't think that they're going to move him off there so how how did that go for him last year and kind of what do you expect him to be able to do with what we hope to be a much more normal 2021
2: well, let's keep our fingers crossed. First of all, on that, um, I'm hoping you're not. Yeah, I to jinx it. it. I am. <laughs> yes, <I'm>, know,
1: um...
2: <laughs> Seriously, next you're going to tell me about the pace of the game. Come on, Meg. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, second base, he's not great. But this is a team that that does shift a lot. They move people around, and the bat he just never seemed to get in a groove. And I think this was. Mustakas's signing, they wanted him as kind of, he was more of a total package. And, you know, for as as, as much as we talk about this team and their analytical shifts and all these things, the Mustakas was almost a, it was almost that intangible thing. They really wanted him for the other things he brought. And also as a signal, remember, he was the first guy to sign. This was, the, this was the bell cow. This was the saying, hey, we're serious about signing guys. And they really wanted him to be kind of that centerpiece of bringing other people in, getting people excited, being that leader in the clubhouse. Now, it wasn't a normal clubhouse. You, the guys I've talked to just said it was just weird last year. You couldn't come in and do that early work. There, there was nothing about 2020 that was regular. I mean, Nick Castellanos was talking about the other day. just said it wasn't fun. It wasn't baseball like I know it. It wasn't pro baseball like we do it. Moustakis is a guy that is really a culture builder. And that was something that they wanted him to be. And then when he was in and out, in and out, it's hard to be that when you're in and out of the lineup. He was, he had that false positive early, or maybe I'm trying to remember if it was either the false positive or a just contact trace kind of thing. And it was early. So it was in the first week or two of the season. If that were three weeks later, he would have been back in a day. Instead he missed a week. And in a week of a sixty game series season is a long time. Then he has a couple injuries. He misses other time. He never seemed to get in there. And I think really what they want him more than the numbers is just that steady presence. And he wasn't able to give that steady presence because he wasn't present steadily.
0: Well, it's the other middle infield spot that caused probably the most consternation this offseason. Maybe the clearest indication of the Reds' inactivity was they're neglecting to sign a shortstop, really. (laughs) So do they have a shortstop currently? I mean, someone will be there on opening day, but who will be there after that? Is there anyone here who can handle that position? Because it seems like it's a broader issue with the Reds. Defense, you know, with players not really fitting into certain positions and the various parts of the roster not really gelling well together. So, is that going to be a, a larger issue? And then, how will shortstop shake out?
2: Yeah. I mean, it is. You know, when, <laughs> this is a pitching staff built on strikeouts. One, because that is really what they have the type of pitcher they have and the type of pitcher they believe in. But, B, also out of necessity, because Fielders can't mess up strikeouts uh, unless the catcher drops it and you throw it first. And he messes up, but that's neither here nor there. So that is an issue, and it really kind of starts with the shortstop spot is a, is a position that, right, they did neglect. And honestly, if you look at it, they neglected it last year as well. They've neglected it for several years since Zach Cozart left. They thought Jose Peraza was that guy. He wasn't. He got hurt. Or no, um, Jose Peraza didn't get hurt. It was Scooter Jeanette who got hurt. They moved Peraza to second. They had had Jose Iglesias on a minor league deal in in eighteen, And he overperformed. And then they got uh, Freddy Galvis, And it was like, oh, do we do Galvis or Iglesias? And they bet on Galvis because he had an option. It was cost control. There weren't going to be any uh, negotiations. So they chose wrong. They had Galvis, and... I mean, that's not any great shakes. That's where they started last year. Remember, this is a team that everybody was really excited about last year. They went into last year with Freddie Galvis as their starting shortstop. The thing is, Galvis's defensive production went down quicker than anybody expected, and especially internally. Internally, they thought that the Galvis would be able to handle it a little bit better than he did, and uh, it just didn't work out, so they had to then scramble during spring training kyle farmer said hey i've been a shortstop Heck, i'm the university of georgia's all-time leader in fielding percentage by shortstop not the fielding percentage is that but hey when you're talking about a team that struggles just to make the plays that's a measurement of making the plays so he started looking pretty good they brought up jose garcia jose garcia is one of this this team's really they believe is the shortstop of the future and and he handled it defensively well but showed that he wasn't ready offensively. And I think they believe that in maybe a year, maybe two years, he is their shortstop. He's the shortstop of the future. Barry Larkin believes this is the shortstop of the future. told me that last spring. So this is a guy that they really are high on. It's just that he's not ready. And that was a big part of this negotiation. Do you overspend on a team that's already trying to save money on someone that you might regret spending that much money on and have dead money for a shortstop that's not going to be playing or being, play in another position, when you already have Mike Moustakas for a couple more years, two more years after this year at second base, and some other guys like Jonathan India coming up, who's a second baseman, third baseman, even Nick Senzel, who could at some point move back to the infield. For him, it's just like staying healthy, I guess. I really believe that. There's all this redundancy when it comes to those non-shortstop positions in this organization. And so it was like, where do we go? So you asked, who plays shortstop now? (laughs) So there's Kyle Holder, who was a Rule 5 pick of the Yankees, or a Rule 5 pick from the Yankees by the Phillies. Then when the Phillies signed D.D. Gregorius, who the Reds did not sign, he became... He was kind of the backup for the Phillies, their um, backup plan. And the Reds were actually had the same plan as well. They were going to pick him in the Rule 5 draft, but the Phillies picked before them, So he became expendable for the Phillies. They traded him over to the Reds. And he's a guy who could really pick it. And I've talked to people in the Yankees organization, and they really like his versatility defensively. They think he's a true shortstop. The question is, can he hit enough? But they think he can hit enough to be a bench player, an extra infielder. And stick there and be a big leaguer. That's not ideal for your starting shortstop or even a a, a platoon. But it could be a platoon. He's a left-handed hitter with a right-handed hitting farmer. Farmer is he's known somewhat as a catcher, but the catching thing was he, he was you know he was a shortstop in college. He's kind of been more of an infielder than a catcher. It's just that the catching was I don't want to say it's a gimmick, but he was converted as a catch to a catcher in the minor leagues. Uh, because of his his frame, his athleticism, his smarts, and he's been able to do that some. He didn't catch an inning last year. So he's a guy who can do that, but he will be playing more shortstop. Uh, they have D-Strange Gordon, who has played some there this spring uh, as a non-roster invite. Alex Dino has played. The first five games of spring training, they've had five different starting shortstops,
0: which has been interesting.
2: I, I honestly expect it to be a combo of Of the Kyles, Kyle Farmer and Kyle Holder
0: Yeah, well as uh, Joe Sheehan wrote to quote him again There's a third baseman at second base, a bench Bat at shortstop, a third baseman in center Field, (laughs) so it doesn't Seem ideal from a defensive Standpoint, but hey, I hope it all Works out somehow, so one more guy I wanted to ask about is Michael Lorenzen, just what his role will be, because I know he always wants to start and he always wants to hit and do everything, and he has been limited in the past, but it seems like he might have a shot at that rotation. Is that true?
2: Yeah, I, I think he's one of the frontrunners for that rotation spot in part because that opens up all the other stuff. And when you're talking about no DH league again this year, It lets, at least having him start lets you have some predictability on those other four days. You know, you can use him as an early bat on some of those days. Maybe you don't use him the day before a start, but a lot of those other days. It also opens up when we're talking about extra innings. Even Maybe even the day before a start, I don't know how uh, risky you want to do it. But there, there are so many times you don't want to put him as that runner in second base because you might need him to pitch if he's pitching out of the bullpen because he's such a weapon out of the bullpen. So if he is a starter, basically he's not on your sheet on the bullpen. And you can use him as a runner. He's probably your fastest runner. And you can use him in there if you haven't used him as an early bat. Um, he's a defensive replacement. Uh, he he looks so much better in longer stints. It's strange. He's, this guy throws six pitches. And it seems like sometimes when he – some guys are – Better when their arsenal is limited. It seems like sometimes maybe his are, he's better when his arsenal's opened up because when he's limited, he's just kind of throwing the fastball and while he can hit a hundred, I don't know that his fastball is often, it doesn't seem to miss bats as much as some others. So it'll be interesting. He looked much better in multiple innings last year than he did in single innings. So, He's got the inside track to me. I, I, I would, if I were handicapping the last two spots, because the first three spots in the rotation are pretty much set. They're they're Castillo, Gray, and Mally. And then I would handicap the other two as Lorenzen and Miley.
0: And last thing I'll ask you before we get to the prediction, you recently did your state of the Votto <laughs> address with Joey and, you know, Saris and Vado batted 226 last year, but his power rebounded. So, did he tell you anything? Did you glean anything from that conversation about what he did differently or what his plan for this season is?
2: So, yeah, Joey, you know, it's always a treat to talk with Joey. He's the most interesting person I will probably ever cover. I, I can't imagine covering a baseball player that's that's any more interesting. I, it's funny. I, <laughs> Ken Rosenthal interviewed him the other day for Fox, and, and we had talked beforehand about what he was going to ask him. He kind of sent me something. And then... He sent me back the answers, and I was like, "Oh my god, can you imagine? Would any other baseball player ever respond that way?" And he just sent back zero. (laughs) So, so yeah, that's that's just kind of an aside. But um, Joey is really kind of said that he's, you know, he's no longer the 2017 Joey Votto. To him, was about perfect, about the ideal situation, and. spent the last couple years chasing that and he's finally come to the conclusion. He said that he can't be that guy. And that I, what he has to do is instead of chasing the ideal version of himself, he has to chase what is going to be the best version for his team and what he can do. And that's going to be a little bit more power, more strikeouts, something he didn't really want to do and sacrifice some of the some of the batting average some of the on base for a little bit more power. something that uh, oddly enough his critics have really wanted for years, but he didn't think at that point was something he was willing to do. So that's something that he's looking to do and you saw some changes if you if you look at what he did the last couple of years, there were some indications over the second half of last year that he was doing that. know, went in there and he did the research and it showed that he hit more pulled fly balls than he had since his rookie year. So this is something that he did, you did see some results, that he was trying to do something differently and maybe there is something that he will follow through and keep doing this. And you even see it in the spring where he is more upright, he's less, he's choking up less, and it's something that, you know, that was a big part of the Joey Votto not striking out thing, and 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 was that, that, that crouch and really choked up, and we're seeing less of that even in spring, and that was a big part of the adjustments that he made after that three-game benching last year. So maybe this is really what he is going to be in the kind of belief of the new Joey Votto that he thinks he needs to be to be a more productive player for this team and what the team needs now.
0: All right. Well, we have come to the traditional end of these segments. Give us a win total projection for 2021.
2: It's funny. This is always kind of a silly thing that we all dread, and nobody got right last year, so I should feel good that um, I, I can't do worse than last year. So I'm gonna say seventy eight, maybe four. So somewhere around there. I, I think this is a team that could be somewhere around five hundred. I don't know. This division is so weird. I think you can take any team but the Pirates and throw them in a hat. And probably if you squint, you can find uh, an order. Any of those orders makes sense. Cardinals are probably the favorites. But I don't know that anybody is a huge favorite or separator than any of the others. Mm-hmm. But I'll just say 78 wins. And that's probably good for third or fourth in this division.
0: All right. Well, I guess that would be a bit of a letdown after breaking the postseason drought, but we'll be watching and hoping for the best, and maybe this will be the year for Nixonzel Zell and, and others who just uh, haven't quite broken through. So it's an interesting team. I don't know exactly how it all fits together, but we will watch and find out, and Trent will tell you if you follow him at Trent and read him at The Athletic. Thank you, as always, Trent.
2: Yeah. And thank you, and uh, hopefully uh, we can get back to normal, I can talk to Sean Doolittle, and we can get the Sean Doolittle, Ben Lundberg, Trent Rosecrans, Star Wars podcast <laughs> together, because I think that would be a lot of fun. And,
0: yes, uh, please.
2: Jose De Leon mentioned my Mandalorian mask on Zoom today, that he liked it, so
0: <laughs>
2: well, maybe Jose De Leon wants in as well.
0: I'm in if Sean's in, and you, of course. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean,
0: Sean's probably bringing in the audience. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Trent. Thank you. Okay, that'll do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. By the way, we talked about Jake Odorizzi's market on our last episode and suggested that the Astros would be wise to inquire about Odorizzi's services in the absence of the injured Frambois Valdez, as well as what seems to be a bit of a COVID outbreak among their pitching staff. And sure enough, John Heyman reported on Friday that the Astros were looking at jake odorizzi whatever that means perhaps there will be some resolution to the Odorizi free agency saga sometime soon and then we will know who won the off-season free agent contracts draft you can support effectively wild on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks Derek ma francis Levesque, paul garrity Tyler Baber and Greg Mitchell. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com/groups/EffectivelyWild. And rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at fangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back early next week. Another two team previews coming your way, Blue Jays and Giants. Talk to you then. I don't understand about calm. Colors and what they say side by side, they both get right together. They both get gray, but he's been pretty much yellow, and I've been kind of
1: blue. But all I can see is red, red.